What's up, everybody? Today, the show is brought to you by uh, two places. Patreon.com slash the show to support the show. Uh, to support, you know, all this creative stuff that we're trying to put out around the show. Um, that's one easy way to support us to support what we're doing and us, um, you know, give you guys some different perks and behind the scenes exclusive stuff with the Patreon side of the show. It's a little bit of an experiment just to see how these different models of, of supporting the show work. Another place you can support the show is uh, the merch, Threadless. If you go to theshow.threadless.com, you can find a bunch of merch that we're going to be putting there uh, for the show. And that's it right now. We're just trying to, this is all an experiment. We're just trying to figure out ways to, um, to make the show sustainable, to, to pay the bills for it, and to, um, to support this creative team of people that are, that are making stuff for the show. But we are open to getting sponsors, you know? We're open to getting sponsors for the show, so if you own a small business or a company or a product or something and want to partner with us, try to partner with us, um, yeah, reach out to us and let us know. We'll try to uh, see if we can make something like that work. On today's episode of the show, we interview Dr. Matthew Rossano. Uh, I really wanted to have him on the podcast. Uh, his book is a psycho psychological psychology psycholo his book approaches religion and our capacity for spirituality and religion from an evolutionary perspective through you know his field of psychology i thought it was a really interesting um you know as catholics we're not afraid of science it's a it's a place where we can explore and and, and be curious and ask questions so really wanted to have him on especially because a lot of his book um the conclusions that he kind of comes to or the, the theory that he proposes is that, uh, you know, religion is just supernatural relationship. It's our capacity for relationship. And it kind of made us human that ri that rituals around these relationships with the supernatural made us human. And me, as someone who works at the church in evangelization, uh, you know, that's kind of this idea, this theme of relationship as something that we're missing in modern, you know, postmodern America, that we're missing uh, in religion. We've missed this theory or this, um, this idea of God as relationship. Uh, it was really interesting for us both to kind of come, come to the same area um, from, from different perspectives. So I really, really enjoyed this interview. I thought we had a really fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it too. So let me know. Uh, let us know on Instagram, uh, in the comments, or wherever else you can find this podcast. Let us know what you think about that. So, anyways, I gotta go to work. So, without further ado, this is Dr. Matthew Rossano in a conversation we had with him a little while back. Uh, hope you enjoy. I also forgot to tell you guys that you can watch the show on YouTube. <laughs> if you go to youtube.com slash Edmund Mitchell, this episode of the show... The video worked out great, so there's, uh, and also on Facebook, you can find it on Facebook page of the show, so, thanks Tim. You're welcome. So do that. You staying home tonight? I hadn't planned on it, no. Plan on it. <laughs> Minus five, four, three, two, one, booster ignition, and liftoff of Discovery. You're gonna die. I'm Raymond Arroyo. We'll see you next time. Okay, are you cool with us starting? Yeah, let's start. All right. Well, thank you for being here, Matt. And uh, be here. I've been very excited for this. Your book was recommended 
on Facebook by, um, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, Artur Rossman uh, from, I think he's the editor of Church and Life at Notre Dame, or he's somehow affiliated with Notre Dame really? University or something, but he just put something up and said, you know, read the Amazon description and said, this looks really interesting. Oh, cool. And it caught my eye. And I started reading it, and then I looked up a little bit about you, uh, fellow Catholic. Yeah. And um, but just reading through some of it, I was very, very excited, and partially because slowly I've been more and more interested in psychology, especially. You know, I come from parish ministry and evangelization and catechesis, and you know, there's a lot of. Um, there's a lot of dramatic, you mentioned in the book, the God wars and these yeah. kind of conversations between atheists and Christians. And, um, it feels like we're on the verge with some of these different, and I, I don't know if this is necessarily true in the academic world, but from a lay person looking at it, it feels like there are some more popular people like Jordan Peterson or, um, some of these other people that, uh, Jonathan Haidt, who from the outside seem to be a little more sympathetic to religion and mm-hmm. not just scientific materialist worldview and seem to be a little more open to it, not from a theological perspective, but just purely from, you know, the theory of evolution being applied to religion and how we worship. Mm-hmm. So I've been really interested in all this and I'm, and I'm kind of reading different books and trying to pull piece this all together myself and figure this out. Um, and so when you, when in your book, you talk about, the theory uh, or, or the uh, religion as a relationship, mm-hmm. man, it just struck a huge chord with me, um, which I would love to get into later. But if you could maybe um, tell the people listening a little bit about yourself. Um, actually, what did you always want to be a psychologist, like get into psychology and be a professor of psychology? I never really knew what I wanted to do with my life, <laughs> yeah. quite honestly. Yeah, um, like all of us. <laughs> and I've just managed to sort of stumble into this yeah. uh, academic career and have tried to make the best of it that I can. Yeah. Uh, oh, I guess I've always been interested in people, and yeah. I really didn't know what to do when I was an undergraduate, so psychology seemed like a good enough major. Yeah. And, and then I found out you really can't do anything with it unless you're a PhD. <laughs> and luckily, I had decent grades, Yeah. Uh, so I was able to get into a PhD program, and there, I was really I, I, I my specialty was actually cognitive psychology. Okay, what's uh, that for people who don't know what that is? The study of the mind and yeah. the study of mental processes, mm-hmm. and so all the different mental processes we engage in problem solving, language, memory. Uh, that's the yeah. domain of cognitive psychology, and yeah. the specific area that I was in was spatial cognition. I in graduate school studied how people learn information from maps. Uh, and probably for the first 10 dozen years or so of my career, um, that's what I published in. I published mm-hmm. in map learning and spatial learning, and you can still find some of my old publications up there. Um, but after I got tenure, tenure is a wonderful thing because then you know, a lot of the pressure is off. You don't yeah. have to immediately keep publishing stuff. Uh, and I wanted to just to start to get into stuff that I was interested in. Yeah. And more and more, I became interested in, in evolution and how you apply evolution to the human mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're going to understand the mind, we need to understand understand the human mind. We're going to yeah. have to understand how it evolved and why it evolved to do the stuff that it does. Yeah. Uh, and so that got me more and more into evolution. And eventually I just retrained myself as an evolutionary psychologist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's really what I identify myself as now, as an evolutionary psychologist. Is that a fairly new field? Like, yeah. It, and, and 
the way I understand it is that the theory of evolution is still, you know, this idea of it is still being applied to different fields. And so Mm -hmm. evolutionary psychology was still a fairly new field. Probably about the early nineties. It started to emerge as its own subdiscipline. And I got my degree and my PhD in 91. Okay. So just when I was getting out of my graduate program, it was first starting to emerge. So by the year 2000, uh, it was starting to establish itself. You, you had um, places like Santa Barbara, University of California, Santa Barbara, and University of Texas at Austin, where you had centers sort of that were emerging because there were leaders in the evolutionary psychology mm-hmm. movement that mm-hmm. were there, and they were starting to gather students around them. Yeah. Um, and so as that started to become more prominent, uh, and I was naturally sort of moving toward evolution and trying to apply it, uh, we sort of came together. Okay. Um, so yes, it's fairly new, and and I moved into it as it was growing. Um, and but now it's a reasonably well established part of psychology. Okay. And then um, maybe tell us a little bit about the origins of this book. What made you write this book? Was were there other books before you start? Get you said you started getting into evolutionary psychology. Where the what was kind of um, the journey from? transitioning to evolutionary psychology and then take us to this book? Well, uh, what happened was, as I got into evolutionary psychology, the question I wanted to address is I wanted to understand what are the uniquely human aspects of the human mind? Mm -hmm. What is it about human cognition that distinguishes it from the cognition of other creatures out there? Yeah. To put it, you know, just real kind of uh, simplistically, what makes us human in terms of our thought? Yeah. Um, And the more I got into it, the more I realized that what really seems to distinguish us is imaginative capacity, Mm -hmm. uh, our ability to uh, relate to others, Mm -hmm. uh, our ability to establish relationships with others that other creatures don't do. Uh, and that naturally started to move me. Okay, how do we do that? Yeah. Uh, and that started to move me into ritual and religion because I, I think one of the things that happened over the course of our evolutionary history is we started to use rituals uh, to establish very tight-knit communities, mm-hmm. uh, cooperative communities that were able to work together in ways that other species couldn't Mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then eventually we started to add the supernatural to that. Mm -hmm. And that made those communities even more tightly knit and even more cooperative. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I ended up with this conclusion. Yeah. What really makes the human mind distinct is um, social cognition, Mm -hmm. our ability to think about others and understand other minds and to work and cooperate with others. And ritual and religion played a very critical role in the course of that evolution. Yeah. Are there a lot of other theories on what makes us distinctly human? I've heard, I've heard that a more recent one is, is that, um, our capacity to pass on culture or to pass on information through culture. Are there other, are there other competing theories for what it is that makes us stay with passing on culture for a second? How do you pass on culture? The only way you can pass on culture is that there has to be some kind of an interpersonal relationship between the mentee and the mentor, one doing the passing and the one receiving, Mm -hmm. uh, it exists, their connection between each other. Yeah exists at a level that you don't see in other species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so even if someone says, uh, yeah, the difference between humans and other species is we pass along culture, the next question for a psychologist like me is, well, how do you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that comes down to some kind of mental capacity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that mental capacity has to involve connecting with another yeah. uh, in a way that you can then transfer knowledge mm-hmm. uh, about uh, you know, how you eat and how you cook and beliefs that we have yeah. that does not get passed on 
in other species. Yeah. This might be jumping ahead, but I've always wondered why it was that like some things are passed through maybe rituals. Some of the cultures pass through rituals, but some of it, or maybe there's an argument or maybe there isn't, you know, I heard that um, if you take mice that have never seen a cat in their life Mm -hmm. and then you expose them to the smell of a cat, they freak out and they get scared. Uh, It would seem to suggest that there's something in their their DNA or something in their genes that they inherit. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I mean, maybe it's the whole nature versus nurture, but but at the same time, there are cultural things that we learn, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you travel in Europe or if you travel in another country, you learn that really quickly, like that there's, (laughs) there are cultural things that people have grown up in that, that affect that Like, yeah. What do you make of that? What do you make of the, you know, the mouse who reacts a certain way or seems to receive information through DNA? Well, through, what that what that tells the evolutionist is that uh, mice over you know the course of their evolutionary history generation after generation after generation were repeatedly confronting a similar type of predator situation mm-hmm. uh, and that is cats yeah uh, and if that's a reliable part of your environment mm-hmm. uh, and if generation upon generation of mice are always going to be confronting this mm-hmm. uh, then a very efficient way of teaching mice avoid these predators uh, is to have it as some kind of code in the DNA mm. so that you don't, you don't have to necessarily have mom teach, you know, mom mouse teach little mouse. Uh, see these things, be afraid of them. Yeah. I don't know how they do that anyway, yeah. but <laughs> um, you know, because those mice that are born simply knowing, Hey, when you smell this, get out of there. Yeah, yeah. They're going to have a greater chance of surviving and reproducing than those mice that have to have their mothers. Yeah. Somehow yeah. transmit that to them. Okay. Um, and so that tells you that was that was a reliable part of the mouse mm-hmm. environment okay. for you know eons. Yeah. So uh, then it gets baked in. It starts it, getting baked right, in. Right. Ba- yeah. Nature will say, hey, if this is always going to be happening, just bake it in. Yeah. 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 It's it's um, it's a comp- competitive advantage mm-hmm. for it to be baked into. Okay. Cool. Those so, that have it baked in are going to survive yeah. and reproduce better than yeah, those that yeah, don't. Yeah. Better than those that have to be taught. Yes. You know, yeah. And and dragged in front of a cat and said. But what know. if your environment isn't like that? What mm-hmm. if your environment is highly variable from one generation to the next? Yeah. Yeah. And and you bake something in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, then that may be a disadvantage. Yeah. Because what was a predator for this past generation may not be there anymore. There may yeah. be a different set of predators. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and now, now it's in trouble. Yeah. Uh, so you can see that one of the things that natural selection does is when things are reliable, you can um, uh, have them transferred or, or transmitted in mechanisms which are more invariable. Okay. Uh, where the environment is more variable, you have to have a different mechanism, mm-hmm. uh, a mechanism that can respond to that variability. Mm-hmm. And so that's where teaching and you know learning from role models and all the kind of stuff that you see with humans starts to come into, into play. Okay. Take us to the origins of this book. How did this book get written or what prompted you to write this? What's the background behind it? Well, um, well, at, fix this camera sure. just a little bit. Why don't you keep talking? Okay. Uh, as I was trying to address this question, what is it that makes us human? What is it about human cognition that, that makes us different from other creatures? And I was more and more coming to the conclusion that ritual and religion, or at least supernatural belief, played an important role in this. There were a number of other books about religion and the origins of religion and the evolution of religion that had come out. Mm-hmm. And so I was reading those as well. Uh, and with all of them, I was, I was thinking, yeah, right, but that doesn't 
quite catch what I'm concluding here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I thought I had a little bit different take on it than mm-hmm. what I was seeing in most of the other works mm-hmm. that had been coming out around that time. Do the and, other works were the other works coming from um, an evolution, uh, an evolutionary yes. perspective, or yeah, okay, typically okay. yes. Okay, uh, but they were looking at different parts of it. Yeah, uh, and they were identifying certain things and saying this really is the critical part yeah. of it. Uh, and my take on it was, well, yeah, that's an important part of it, but that to me, that isn't the critical, yeah. the most critical yeah, yeah. part of it. Uh, and so I thought I had an idea about the mm-hmm. evolution of religion uh, that hadn't been, um, you know, was, wasn't in the mainstream yet or wasn't really out there yeah. Uh, yeah. to a great extent uh, in the in the academic community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you have that, uh, you know, you do what academics do, which is you submit a proposal to a, a, a publisher and say, hey, I got an idea here. Uh, yeah. and uh, let's flesh it out. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, if some publishers come back and say, Hey, this is cool. This, you know, is not only is it academically sound, but it may sell. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. and so Oxford press was one of the presses that came back and said, we're interested in this. Nice. Yeah. So the thesis, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, but the thesis kind of is, is that the theory or the, what you're proposing is that we should view religion through the lens of relationship and yeah. more so supernatural relationship and that uh, over time, humans evolved in a way to take on this more supernatural relationship, and that that was good. That was good for people. But maybe you could talk a little bit because you go into some of the other theories of religion. You know, commitment theory, mm-hmm. or they approach it from like you're saying, they approach it from a different perspective: commitment, cognitive, ecological performance. Maybe you could talk about how. Um, and you did a great job of breaking down each one, explaining it, and then also saying, here's where it has some strengths, but it's missing mm-hmm. these other areas. And then you kind of gave this final religion as relationship is predictive. It It's a theory that can be predictive. It's a theory that can encompass all these other mm-hmm. theories. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how it's different from some of those other theories. Okay. So uh, as I said, as I was getting more and more into this, I was reading other books and most of those other books that were looking at the evolution of religion were in those different categories that you Mm -hmm, just talked mm -hmm, about. They mm -hmm. were talking about the cognitive abilities that are necessary for religion, or they were talking about how religion and ritual regulates um, our use of the environment of environmental resources and that sort of thing. Okay. What I tried to argue there is that if you look at all of those different uh, theories that people have been using. Um, give a couple of examples, like the cognition example. Mm-hmm. One of the big arguments it makes is one of the things that our ancestors did with religion is it helped them explain uh, unexplainable things. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. why is there thunder? Why yeah. did we have a famine? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we can explain that by talking about uh, spirits and gods and mm-hmm. that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Uh, or uh, the commitment theory. Yeah. Um, well, we, real quick, the the cognitive and isn't it that? And I think some scientists still think that religion is this that it's just explaining away the unexplainable. Like yeah, if you see yeah. a force you can't explain, chalk it up to some type of supernatural. Right. Yeah. It, yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. That, yeah. that it, it. But it can serve a function that way. Yeah. 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 So so in a way, it's. Um, adaptive or it's at least functional uh, mm-hmm. you know it, it allows the mind not to be um so um taken up with that or yeah. use some so many resources trying to figure that out that that starts to become detrimental yeah. or it's functioning yeah. 
Um, okay, so you got that. Uh, the commitment theory. Commitment theory argues that uh, you're, if you've got different human groups out there and they're competing with each other, those groups that tend to be more tightly knit mm-hmm. uh, tend to be able to work together more effectively. Yeah. Uh, that are more committed to each other, they're going to outcompete other groups. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and there's certainly truth in that. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Uh, and but their argument then is that you then can use ritual and supernatural belief as a mechanism for creating very tightly committed communities that are going to outcompete uh, communities that are less. Tightly yeah. committed, yeah. Uh, uh, tighten it to each other, and I, I agree with that. Um, but if you take all of these, my argument is there's something underlying all of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, if we look at, say, the cognitive theory, uh, and we ask, okay, we're explaining the unexplainable, but how do we explain it? Yeah, how, almost all the time when we're trying to explain the unexplainable, we're explaining it in terms of some kind of relationship between whatever this force is out there and mm-hmm. us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the lightning is because Thor is angry. Yeah. Uh, and I better you know do what Thor wants, or yeah. I might get hit with one of those things. Yeah. 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 Uh, or the famine is because we broke some kind of taboo, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore I better not break taboo or, mm-hmm. you know, the ancestors or the spirits are going to punish me. So there's a relational element to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the commitment is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the commitment is probably more, most easily seen as a relational mm-hmm. um, uh, theory Yeah. Um, in that what we're doing is we're using supernatural belief as a way of um, making sure everybody uh, stays in line, making yeah. sure everybody follows norms of unselfishness. And um, and so that's all about how I'm relating to my neighbor. I can relate to my neighbor in a more effective way because I know my neighbor is going to follow divine law yeah. because he doesn't want to get punished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that means we can trust each other. And so mm-hmm. we have a tight-knit community if, anybody, if everybody is, is obeying those rules. So my argument was if you look at all of these theories, there's something – there's a strand running through them. Uh, that is uh, the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is they all deal with relationships. Mm-hmm. They deal with our relationship with each other, our relationship to the tribe or the group, our relationship with some supernatural elements that we think are out there. Uh, and so at the core of it, uh, religion is about uh, relationships, about establishing and perfecting relationships with each other, mm-hmm. about the relationships that we perceive that we have with supernatural entities. Uh, and and so this then feeds nicely into other things that I was working with, which is the whole idea that what makes humans different from other species is social cognition, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, our ability to relate to others, yeah. our ability even to conceive of individuals that aren't concretely in front of us yeah what is that called the uh other mind or understanding other minds and thinking that that other creatures out there even unseen creatures have minds yeah like ours is that what that is you you talked about in the book the the philosophical kind of the problem of other minds yeah the problem of other minds yeah Uh, yeah. and theory of mind you know this is another aspect of human cognition that allows us uh to have very deep inner relationships with other humans and to uh, have relationships even with humans and others that aren't concretely in front of us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there may be a lot of your listeners mm-hmm. uh, who are loyal listeners to you, mm-hmm. never met you, yeah, don't know anything about you other than what you've revealed. You know, on your, I could on be your an artific- I could be an artificial intelligence. They, for all they know, but you, they they may very well think about you during yeah. the day. What, yeah, would, yeah. what would Edmund think about that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, and gee, I wonder. You know, if I do that, would Edmund approve of it? We do probably that a lot. not. I probably wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't do that. <laughs> and so that we do that. Yeah. Uh, we think that we have relationships, even when the other party 
may not even be aware of who we yes, are. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's a, a uniquely a unique aspect of human cognition, and it's one of the aspects of human cognition that allows for supernatural belief, religious belief, uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So what I love what I loved about this theory of or the the idea of is is that proper to say the theory of religion as relationship, or would you just say this like your proposal of religion as relationship, or do you just say religion as relation like how do you t- i don't know how to talk about these terms in a scholarly way yeah. or like in the appropriate way would you say it's your theory would you say it's your well, uh thesis it, would- it, thesis might be a good okay, word okay, okay. um it qualifies as a theory if from it we can derive hypotheses and then we can start to test those hypotheses and then the nature of the data that we get uh tells us gives us support or non-support yeah, for yeah, it yeah. um and there may be some folks out there doing stuff like that, uh, and there, there, are, I, there are some studies that I cite that yeah. do support that kind yeah, of yeah. thing. I tend to be much more of just a theoretician mm-hmm. and a philosopher yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. than yeah. actually going out and yeah. doing experiments. Uh, and so I can't say that I've taken my own ideas yeah. and started to work with them as you would a formal theory. Yeah. In other words, testing well, it and all that kind of stuff. So a, approach thesis is probably a better way okay. you know, to put it. Well, what I liked is that you do start trying you – you do kind of show how you could start applying that that you know outlook approach the thesis to other things and recently or you know in the past couple years i've been thinking about and i i I assume or you know from my from my point of view it feels like um there has and correct me on any of this if i'm wrong but there used to be this classical understanding that um man is man can be reasonable like that we can have reason Mm -hmm. and uh that people are reasonable and so all of our economic theories and psychology and educational theories kind of have that as the the premise that people are people can be reasonable and if they're emotional we need to tell them hey stop being emotional be reasonable you know be more like spock and it seems like there's a new sign you know a new movement to say no it seems like people aren't reasonable mm-hmm. and that emotions are much more involved in reason and we can't go through that we can't have you know in the catholic world it's very in fashion to cite aquinas and and be very proud of how yeah, reasonable yeah. we are and i've been exposed to the works of like daniel kahneman mm-hmm. and and i don't know if i don't know how valid some of these are these are just things i'm getting off of amazon i'm, I'm always insecure about that because i might list a book and i'm afraid that someone more knowledgeable is going to go oh that's that whole book's a piece of trash you know well somebody will say that okay that yeah, doesn't yeah. mean they know what they're yeah, talking that's about true, that's true that's true yeah. that's true but but exposed to like th- this idea that our emotions are very much connected with our reason and um that even in economic theory it's being upturned yeah, this yeah. idea so i love that you started saying or, or that you start applying if we look at religion as just relationship, it makes uh, religion and reason not at odds anymore. Mm-hmm. Because if you view, view religion as relation, maybe you could just explain it better. If you view really religion as a relationship, then if you go to someone who's more prone to scientism, who's like, we need to be reasonable and empirical and objective and religious people are not empirical or objective or reasonable. You can kind of explain it to them in a new way that it might be easier for them to understand in the context of relationship. Yeah. Well, relationships aren't reasonable. Yeah. yeah they're not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you, well, relationships force us to abandon science. Yeah. Yeah. They don't force us to abandon reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do force us to abandon science. There's no way that anyone can do scientific empirical testing yeah. to decide 
okay, this is the person I want to marry, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, or can do that even to try to decide if um, you know th- I'm going to be friends with this person. Yeah, yeah. Um, instead, when it comes to the realm of relationships, we are reduced to emotion, interacting with reason, interacting with evidence. Um, and and that's not going to be science. Nobody nobody can live their life yeah. by the scientific method. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, if someone makes the criticism that we we should be more reasonable, and what they mean by that criticism is we should live more like we're using the scientific method to make our decisions. Yeah. It, it, it just can't be done. It would kill your relationships. It, it would. Yes. You have this. You have this. <laughs> Absolutely. You have this fantastic. A uh, fantastic quote in here um, about about the idea that the person who doesn't try to take the risk with a god or with a supernatural, like, um, and man, I'm jumping all around because I'm so excited. But there, there is a part where you basically said, okay, well, what if we just grant that it's impossible to prove whether or not God exists? We need to we need to just see whether or not taking that risk is beneficial for us as humans. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes. And I have to I'm not the first to think of that. Yeah. Um, William James, I think. I hope I cite him or yeah, there's others yeah, yeah. that, that, that made few, that same choice. Yeah, you cite a few, or made that same case. Uh um, man, where is it? Man, I wish I could find the uh there's one quote in here but, that but, I love the passage that you they cited. Sorry. Yeah, think about it. It's the same thing with personal relationships with other people though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um we end up taking risks. Mm-hmm. Uh we end up reaching a point where we say uh you know, either I move forward and deepen this relationship yeah. or I, I step back. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and of course, if you move forward with it, there's going to be a risk involved mm-hmm. in that. And you want to try to evaluate to some extent, you know, how big a risk is this? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the rewards? Um, and so you try to gather some kind of evidence. You know, you talk to people. What do you think of Fred? You know, does Fred seem like an honest person to yeah. you? Yeah. You know, and but that isn't scientific evidence no. by any means. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the examples I use in there is, you know, does this person like Homer? <laughs> you know, I mean, do they, do they, you know, is, is home and, and well, you know, if, if they like Homer and I like Homer and Homer talks a lot about values and yeah. honor, then maybe they're honorable maybe, too. Yeah, maybe That's they're okay. That's the kind of stuff we end yeah. up doing. Does this person like the New Orleans Saints? Yeah. Then they're okay. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, and, and that's not scientific. Yeah. It's evidence yeah. if you think about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is an observation uh, that you've made about this individual. Uh, it does say something about their character. It gives you some kind of evidence about things that they're interested in and issues that are in their on their mind. Yeah. And that may tell you something about what kind of relational partner they're going to be. But in the end, you just say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a shot because mm-hmm. I think it's worth it. Yeah. And my emotions are pushing me this way. And, and, and if you don't do that... You're not really human, mm-hmm. are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you're the sad, lonely little person in the corner yeah. who, unless you can prove everything to a certain degree of scientific credibility, you don't take a chance. Yeah. Nobody can live that way. Yeah. You talk about, uh, you give an example of two friends, a very common <laughs> scenario, maybe, uh, two friends who then, you know, two men who are friends and then one of them starts dating a lovely lady and, and you use it as an example to say that relationships are transformational. Yeah. They they alter our view of reality. Yeah. And that then, you know, like, like, like with the Beatles and like with many friends that are friends growing up, once someone falls in love with the lady, the friendship then gets re translated and that it can, it transforms everything. And the inner logic of the friendship and the dating 
is sound, but the two friends are just not on the same page. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you want to talk a little bit about religion as being relationship that transforms. Right. Yeah. So I think with a lot of people, that's true. Uh, With a lot of people, the way they approach religion and the way they approach God is uh, this idea that, um, all right, I'm going to start having some kind of relationship with, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever this thing is we call God. Yeah. Uh, And when you do that, you, you strive to learn more about the, the, individual, the entity, whatever you want to say that, that you're in a relationship with. Uh, and that starts to then have some kind of effect on you. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so you're right. The, the critical question then I always ask is, is that relationship and what you're doing, um, in terms of that relationship, is it having a positive benefit or is having a negative benefit? Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's how you end up evaluating relationships, right? Yeah. 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 Um, you know, you may dive into them, uh, taking some risk, uh, at some point you have to evaluate, where is this taking me? Yeah. Is it taking me in a positive direction or in a negative direction? If it's taking you in a negative direction, then maybe the relationship is something you should yeah. break off. Yeah. Uh, if it seems to be taking you in a positive direction, then um, you know all the arguments about oh, there's not enough evidence, and uh, you know that this isn't you know you're not using your most rational part of your mind. All of that to me seems to be pretty secondary, pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, not not all that important because yeah. in the end you only live once. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if this is actually making your life if it's enriching your life, it's mm-hmm. making you better as an yeah. individual, it's m- making it better for those around you because you are a better person mm-hmm. and that's beneficial to them, then you know, the other arguments about this doesn't measure up to some level of intellectual integrity, they seem pretty uh, flimsy to me. Yeah, and it seems it seems very. It's always struck me as kind of flippant to just assume that if someone is acting in a way that I deem irrational, they must be irrational. But you talk about you know pet lovers and yeah. how you can't talk someone out of the belief <laughs> that they are having a relationship with their with their dog. And we you know if you just view it as well, just be rational, and you go to that person and try to explain it away, it's almost futile. You know it can be futile. But when you look at it as relationship and that there's this inner logic of relationship that sometimes is irrational, it's, yeah. it's much, you, it allows me to be much more empathetic towards people who have any other type of belief because there, it's, it, it now I'm, I'm able to say, okay, this is a relationship and this person is experiencing something that's going to be hard for me to just explain away. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, where do you go from there in the conversation with, let's say, you know, you're saying that someone has a relationship or a supernatural relationship that might be um, damaging? Is there a way that we talk with people of different religious beliefs, or uh, and I and I say religious belief to include, you know, scientism, materialism, yeah. humanism? But um, how wh- the question I had as I was reading that is, it's it's helpful to say, okay, I can empathize now more and I don't just write you off as irrational if you believe something different or if you're in a different relationship with something supernatural. But how can you then have a common uh, dialogue about those relationships? Is there a way to talk about, well, you know, I'm dating this God and this God seems to be pretty, <laughs> maybe you should break up with your God and, and come hang out with our God for a while. Boy, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't believe in any kind of heavy handed 
you know, you got to try to convert people to yeah. your way of viewing things. I, no, I, I think you look at the individual and you look at how they're functioning. What, what is that? There's some quote in the Bible by their fruits. Yeah. They'll be judged. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Look at the fruits that that individual is bearing. Yeah. Uh, and if their life uh, appears to be very positive and there's a lot of benefits that seem to be coming out of whatever religion it is they're practicing and what they're doing with it, then I, I, I think it's best just to back off and say, hey, it's great. You yeah. know? And yeah, yeah. I think what you want to do, if you're one of those individuals that's really concerned about bringing people to your way of thinking and your way of believing, um, I, I go by the old adage of uh, St. Francis, right? Which mm. is, uh, you know, preach the gospel, always only use words when absolutely necessary. Mm. So yeah. if somebody else can see in you, that your life is so together yeah. uh, and you seem to be very happy and very genuine, mm-hmm. uh, they might start to ask the question, gee, how is it that you're able to do that? Yeah. Uh, and then you say, well, you know, here's a big part of it right here. Yeah. Well, the other thing I was getting out of it too, is that if you were talking to someone about um, a specific worldview or religion or God, you can't purely talk to them from, uh, from reason alone. You can't yep. just rationally, there is, from what you were describing, it seems implied that you have to help them experience a relationship and not just talk about it rationally, not just say, well, this is the God that we believe in and here's some rational things you can believe about him, but more, uh, what are ways that you can help someone experience that relationship yeah, if they're yeah, looking yeah, for that relationship right. yes yeah I, I think you hit it well there and that is first they have to be looking for it yeah, uh, yeah. if they're not looking for it then i think it starts to look um like you're being manipulative yeah, or you're trying yeah. to intervene in something some place yeah. that you don't belong but if they are looking for it uh then teach by example you yeah know, look at look at how well it seems to be working for me uh, you're interested in something like this um you know maybe i can help you come around to experiencing the sort of thing that I'm experiencing and it'll be as good for you as it is for me. So you, you've said in the book a few times that religion made us human and maybe we could start talking a little bit about this history, the the history of how this would have developed from, you know, our ancient, ancient ancestors. And then what you said, this capacity for social cognition, is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. And how that would then evolve because the history you sketch kind of your story that you keep telling throughout the book is very interesting how it goes from, well, I'll just let you kind of give us a broad brush of it. Well, I know I said that in there. Um, I've modified that a little bit over the years. Okay. Um, Ritual. Mm -hmm. I'm much more focused on ritual now than I have been when I was writing that book. Uh, and so if I, if I had a chance to modify it, I'd say ritual made us human. Okay. Um, how do I end up saying that? I end up saying that um, because what makes us human is our ability to cooperate with each other, mm-hmm. uh, our ability to form cooperative communities and to act in communion with others, to work with others, to achieve common goals with others, cooperate with others, engage in reciprocal relationships with others, to know others yeah. in a way that no other species can. Mm-hmm. That's really, for me, the, the, it's, it's relational. It's social intelligence. Yeah. Uh, that's what makes us human. But ritual is a different – ritual is kind of a supernaturally charged word. Well, it's different than customs right. maybe. Well, OK. Uh, but when we look and we ask, oh, how is it that we form those deeply cooperative communities? Mm-hmm. And, and when we look at any traditional society, when we start to look back in our evolutionary history, even when we start to look at other species – ritualized behavior has a deep, deep evolutionary Mm -hmm, history. mm -hmm. Uh, And it's hard to find any traditional hunter-gatherer group, which we think are our best 
examples of what we think our ancestors were yeah. like. And uh, they're imperfect, to be sure. Um, but it's the best we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we look at that, uh, we see lives absolutely saturated in ritual. Yeah. Uh, so ritual is the mechanism that they use to create these cooperative communities. Mm-hmm. Cooperative communities are what distinguish humans from other species. Okay. Um, now, y- you can have ritual without supernatural belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think there probably was a time in our evolutionary history where that was the case, yeah. uh, where we were using ritualized behaviors to form cooperative communities in ways that did distinguish us from other species, but our ritualized behaviors that we were engaged in didn't have any sort of supernatural content to them, or they didn't necessarily have that. I do think there was a point in our evolutionary history where our brains got big enough and our imaginative capacity increased um, that we started to add the supernatural to those social rituals. Would that, would that make it distinctly distinct? a ritual that that was a that was one thing i kept asking myself is when we look back at some of the archaeological evidence we look back at these things how do you differentiate just a you know every day i wake up and i sharpen this stick Mm -hmm. from something that we would call a ritual something how do we differentiate something that might just be a a you know a banal like meaningless action from something that's ritual it like Maybe you could give some type of de- working definition. Uh, of, okay. Yeah. I know that's probably hard. <laughs> yeah, it is. But it sounds like you're saying it's some type of um, important action that unifies us as a social yeah, group. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here we go. Um, think of a continuum. Okay. You have ordinary behavior, yeah. you have ritualized behavior, and you have ritual. Okay. 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 And so you're moving along this continuum. Yeah. Ordinary behavior is just what you described, and that is I get up, uh, I, yeah, I have to, my, my tool is, you know, I need to sharpen it or I need to repair my tool from last night, so I go over there and repair my tool. Yeah. It's cold, so I make some, I make the fire, and, yeah. and so those are just ordinary behaviors. Yeah. They're, uh, utilitarian. They're uh, achieve. They're they're aimed at achieving particular goals that are necessary in order to survive. Necessary to function. Uh, that's ordinary behavior. Okay. Then you move to ritualized behavior. Ritualized behavior, and all along this continuum, there are fuzzy boundaries. Yeah. yeah. So when does it make that transition? <sighs> People argue about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what what we end up doing is we look for particular characteristics, mm-hmm. and the more of these characteristics we tend to see, the more likely we are to say that's ritualized yeah. action that's taking place there. Would one be that it, it just seems to when you look back, it's like there's no other utilitarian okay. value. Is that one of them? Like one, this doesn't one of seem the things, to serve a purpose, right? Exactly. One of the things we can look for is we can start to ask, okay, can I identify a very clear, tangible goal that this person is trying to achieve yeah, with that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and. If you can't, you start to think, okay, now we're getting more and more into the realm realm of ritual. Right. Uh, Now, sometimes you could say, but I think the goal is this, but it's kind of an abstract thing. Yeah. You know, so you may be able to – so this is why the the boundaries get fuzzy. Yeah. And you you talked about uh, red ochre, I think, and fleshing of skulls as two examples, I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, those may be some of the earliest archaeological evidence of some kind of ritualized behavior because uh, take a defleshed skull, you find – a skull and you can it's like why do you do that right exactly i mean my father-in-law does that with deer heads (laughs) 
right? Defleshing the skull, isn't that what it's right? What it and he's going to do what? Put a trophy up on? Yeah, the, just put it up on yeah, the wall. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah. it's a display. Yeah. Uh, so we can identify a goal yeah. to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we assume that if we're looking at a skull that is 160,000 yeah. years old, they weren't displaying them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As trophies. Yeah. Um, we would expect the first reason why they're pulling the skin off of it is because they need the skin for nutrition to survive. Yeah. They always, always go go with the most simple practical explanation the only problem with that is um you end up expending much more energy trying to get the flesh off interesting than from whatever nutritional value or energy value you get from just eating that little bit of flesh so it's a waste of time yeah um and so because it's a waste of time then we start to say okay why are they doing this we can't find a good practical reason for it yeah we do know that in traditional societies our best model for what our ancestors were like they do this for ritual purposes yeah. you know it's an ancestor yeah. or it's an enemy they want to in they want to uh, somehow uh, take in the spirit of yeah. an ancestor or uh, somehow you know take in the spirit of an enemy if they were a great warrior or something but there's ritualized reasons for it and so because of that we start to speculate maybe this is some of our first evidence of mm-hmm. ritualized behavior yeah. uh, in our ancestors so yeah uh, you, you have that but but let me let me give you your definition of, yeah. of ritualized behavior yeah. so so what we're looking for is right a non-utilitarian action an action that seems to be repetitious mm-hmm. they seem to be doing it over and over again mm-hmm. uh, an action that seems to follow some kind of sequence uh, there's a pattern to it mm-hmm. um if we can identify that it's stereotyped in some way, it's exaggerated in some way. Mm-hmm. They're doing it in a way that is much bigger. Um, it, it, it expends much more energy in the in the display of the action yeah. than what is really necessary practically. Um, and it seems to be communicating some kind of a message mm-hmm. to some other member of the species. Mm-hmm. So think of a mating dance between two waterfowl. Yeah. Okay. I mean, oh, yeah. there are, there's a specific sequence of actions. Yeah. The actions are often quite exaggerated. Mm-hmm. You know, they're bobbing their heads back and forth in a very obvious way yeah. toward each other. They're moving in, in a very specific kind of sequence. Uh, they're not just trying to get around each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if they were just, if one of them was trying to go here and the other one was trying to go there and they were just trying to get around each other, then they just step around each other and go about their business yeah they don't they seem to keep stepping in each other's way yeah uh and so so they're communicating some kind of a message about uh, we think about their worthiness as being a mate Mm -hmm. Uh, so they do this dance and the more they're able to synchronize their activities the more that sends messages uh, to them that this might be a good mate yeah we're able to to do this synchronized movement together well that may indicate that we can do other things together well like mate yeah yeah yeah. we watch a lot of planet earth we see some of those birds doing Right, the, right. Like the in the grasslands, they build this uh, this little donut in the grass, yeah. and then he kind of plays hide and seek around it with her, and goes back and forth, and right. they're all jumping up, and it's really crazy. Those yeah, rituals. very uh, stereotyped, exaggerated, uh, re- repetitious, and we think a message is being sent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, ritualized behaviors become these mechanisms or these ways in which members of a species are able to send a clear message about their intentions to another member of the species. Okay, if you move further along the continuum, and other species have ritualized behaviors just like humans have ritualized yeah, behaviors. Yeah. I think humans are the only species that actually have rituals. Okay. Now, what you're doing with a ritual is you're taking the ritualized behavior, and now you're starting to surround it in all kinds of ceremonial, symbolic, traditional 
customs Mm -hmm. of some sort. Mm -hmm. So the example I often like to use here is if you think of a wedding, there are ritualized behaviors. Mm -hmm. People are going to stand, they're going to sit, they're going to kneel, they're going to sing songs together. There's a script that they follow. Mm -hmm. Okay, all of that are the ritualized behavior elements. Mm -hmm. But there's all kinds of symbolic things that are added to it. You know, there's readings from scripture, there are lighting of candles, Mm -hmm. there's rings that are exchanged that are meant to symbolize something about, you know, the infinity of love and the everlasting, uh, you know, love. And, 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 and it's a reminder to other people that are witnessing this. They see symbols, they mm-hmm. see patterns mm-hmm. that remind them of their wedding or of another wedding that yeah. they've been to. And this then starts to remind them of values. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening with rituals is we take the ritualized behaviors, we start to surround them with all of these traditional ceremonial symbolic aspects that makes the occasion more memorable. It also highlights uh, values. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the things that our tribe, our community values? Mm-hmm. These are the things that we are going to somehow represent, symbolize. Yeah. Uh, these are the things that we're going to revisit each time we engage in this ritual. Mm-hmm. And so then rituals for humans bring a community together, typically, reinforce values, uh, tell us who we are, mm-hmm. tell us what our identity is as a group and what our group holds to be sacred. Yeah. And so it has a very powerful identifying and unifying function. Yeah. So, so are we saying that at a certain point in our evolutionary history, it stops becoming just about the group and suddenly, you know, it's like the ritual behavior becomes more and more significant, more and more significant until finally we make the jump to this other supernatural relationship is that well right okay now what if you think about it if you're moving from ritualized behaviors to rituals Mm -hmm. and you're adding these ceremonial elements these symbolic elements that are supposed to reinforce values that are supposed to compel people to identify as a certain uh, member of a tribe Mm -hmm. and and our tribe believes these certain things and therefore we have to act towards each other in a certain way what more powerful way could you impress that upon people uh, than to say, you know, as we're doing this ritual, we here, the the actual physical people that are performing the ritual, we aren't the only ones here. Mm. We are being watched yeah. uh, from above mm-hmm. by powerful gods, spirits, ancestors. Yeah. And so if we fail to uphold the values that these rituals are embodying mm-hmm. and representing – you're not just disappointing other members of your group. Mm-hmm. You're disappointing your father and your mother who yeah. are deceased, who are looking down upon you. You're disappointing powerful ancestors from generations past. You're violating divine laws and rules that have yeah. been part of our community for yeah. as long as we can think of ourselves as a community. You're really screwing up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that compels people. To be even more committed yeah. to their group, yeah. to what their group stands for, and therefore to give to their group, you know, to, to be a good group member. And so we think then those groups that started to have those ideas that were able to solidify themselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and bring themselves together with that tight sense of cohesion, they would have outcompeted uh you know, whatever kinds of secular groups might yeah. have been around that had their yeah, rituals, yeah. but they didn't enhance their rituals yeah. with this other element. Is what, what what came first? I'm sure you kind of went over this a little bit in the book, but it almost seems like you know you start interacting with your other friend, your other cavemen friends, and <laughs> yeah. then you and then you decide that um, being fair 
is a value that we want to reinforce as a as a as a group. So we institute these rituals to talk about the import or to to um, instill and try to hold people accountable to fairness. It almost seems like that that is the first kind of abstract thought of something non-material like what comes first our capacity to abstract to like um an aristotelian ideal right like love justice mercy yeah yeah was did those rituals help us go this thing that we're enacting it's like an abstract idea of justice and then and then to follow that up is it just kind of our nature to always anthropomorphize love and justice and mercy as a thing like it's it's uh it's much it's easier to be to upset the ideal or the abstract principle of justice it's much harder to upset a god named justice you yes. know it's much is so like how does that play into it is that just part of our you know, we were always anthropomorphizing things, you know, the wind and justice and these abstract principles. Is that where? That yeah, comes I, from? I think you've hit it pretty good. OK, uh, yeah, I, you would have to have some capacity for abstract thought before you're starting to represent that thought and and, and personalize that thought uh, in ritual behavior. Yeah. Uh, and, and we can even demonstrate that there there are abstract thought capacities in our primate uh, mm-hmm. cousins and in other animals. Certainly not to the same degree and depth, but mm-hmm. abstract thought would have come before yeah. uh, you know um, any of these supernatural rituals. I think they would have been enhancing uh, and and as you say, personalizing uh, those thoughts that yeah. we had and those ideals that we had. So yeah, abstraction comes first, and then what you're doing is you're enhancing abstraction. Uh, you're um, making these ideals, whatever they are, they're they're you're somehow bringing them more to life yeah. by. Uh, embodying them and acting them in some way yeah. in the ritual behavior. And yeah, I think you you hit it perfectly. And that is uh, those groups that thought of this idea of, look, hey, this abstract principle, yeah. uh, it ain't just this abstract principle out there. Yeah. Um, it, it has emotions. It's it, going to be it's, upset. It's, it's, it's like a mother-in-law. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's like your mother-in-law. And, and adherence to that principle would probably go up as opposed to it just being this abstract idea. It's oh, like, a- absolutely. When, when we look at traditional societies, um, they do not see their community as just the community of the living that's, that you're running into in your, your little village, your little tribe. Uh, the ancestors are just as much part of the community as they are. Mm-hmm. And so th- whatever they do, they have to think about not just how is my neighbor in the next cave uh, or my ne- in the next tent, whatever. Yeah. I, I know I'm, I'm – <laughs> I don't mean to stereotype <laughs> traditional societies, but you know, in our in our yeah. our group, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's my neighbor going to think of this? They also have to think about what are my ancestors going to think about yeah, this, yeah, this yeah. action that I'm going to do. Yeah, um, they're almost all always thinking in those terms. We are the ones right now, we Westerners uh, who are weird. You run into the weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Have, have you have you what? run into the weird stuff? What do you mean? I'm oh, kind of oh, weird. Uh, no, there's a whole movement out there now. Um, oh, weird, like Western, Western educated. Yeah, exactly. What is it? Uh, Western. Western, educated, educated um, industrial, industrial, democratic is in there somewhere. Okay, okay, and, okay yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we weird folks, we are the ones that have created this separate uh, separation between natural and supernatural. Yeah, there's the natural yeah, yeah. realm, there's the supernatural realm. You would not have found that in our ancestors. You don't find it in traditional hunter-gatherers. Yeah. It's all one continuous community. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so for them, the community is all of these folks. The community is who came before who now presently mm-hmm. and who is to come, yeah. the descendants that are to come. They're all 
part of the community. And so any of my actions that I take, any decisions that I make, who I marry, who I'm going to hold a grudge against, how I'm going to go out and hunt today, mm-hmm. I have to think about all of these different levels of my society and yeah. how they might affect it. Yeah. So would we say that what may, so rituals make us human because rituals helped us abstract out or think in the abstract terms and also it increased group adherence to those higher ideals that bound us together? Is that a fair way of saying it? I'm going to always keep ritualized behavior and ritual in the realm of building cooperative communities. And and one of the ways that ritual is doing that is by uh, representing, embodying, uh, and transmitting values. Okay. Okay. So, but the, the values would already have been there. Um, it's just, it's really easy to forget them in the course of my everyday activities because I am basically a self-interested creature. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I know there's this value about reciprocation and being fair and, uh, but, uh, right now as we're interacting, I'd really like more of those berries Mm -hmm. because I'm hungry and I, you're not that hungry, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I can tell. Yeah. You you just take them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so values are always there and we're always ignoring them. Mm -hmm. How do you get people not to ignore them? Mm -hmm. Okay. That's where all of these rituals start to come into play. Okay. Um, you know, you, if you, um, I was just reading an article uh, about some stuff that they found in uh, this place called Rhino Cave uh, in Botswana. Uh, and they were talking with one of the um, tr- uh, people from a traditional society that lives around there. Uh, and he would talk about how after he got done hunting, he would always go to the cave and he would give some kind of part of the hunt sacrifice to the ancestors. Okay. He had to give it up. Yeah. He wanted to, you know, yeah. I want to keep it all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. all mine. I hunted it. <laughs> yeah. But I'm responsible to the ancestors somehow, you know, mm. they helped me get this. So, and so, you know, and so this is a ritual that he has to engage in after he hunts. Mm-hmm. Notice how the ritual forces him to keep foremost in his mind the idea that, um, he can't just be totally selfish yeah. about what he, you know, even, even though he killed this, he has to give up some of it. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the things our ancestors were doing where we they were trying to rem- constantly remind people, these are the values by which our tribe lives by. Mm-hmm. And therefore when you hunt, uh, when you, before you go to bed, uh, as you sit around the fire, there are rituals you have yeah. to do yeah, yeah. to remind you of this. So, so is it fair to say that what makes humans, different than animals is kind of the the level to which they can go farther along that spectrum of ritual yeah um because animals are doing rituals but there's something different about the rituals that like a bird does well right i would say no i would say animals don't do rituals they do ritualized behavior yes yeah so that's i always try to cut that distinction between are we talking about ritualized behavior are we talking about ritual gotcha gotcha. and i think when it comes to ritual that's only something humans do yeah yeah and you talk about the importance of the imagination in this kind of broad history this story right um and and have we have we kind of covered the story because I know you also mentioned shamanism is kind mm-hmm. of a first stage of uh, and you cite some really interesting studies about the effects of supernatural belief on healing yeah. or physical physical health and that at first they might have just been rituals to affect us physically mm-hmm. um, and then and then it kind of grows to what was the next step after that what probably ancestor worship yeah. ancestor worship and then um, oh man where, where was I going before I said that there was something else that we were talking about 
Man, I forget. I've lost my train of thought there. <laughs> what was I bringing up? Um, well, you're oh, talking about the evolution of religion, I think. Yeah, and the yeah, different yeah. phases that yeah, we yeah. think it went through. Yeah, yeah. So, um, man, what was the the next thing we were going to talk? I was talking about. Uh, well, anyways, the whole idea that um, uh, supernatural worship or supernatural belief. Oh, imagination. Yeah. Uh, so, where does imagination fit in our past, in our evolution? Like, where does our capacity? You, you talk about. I think, if I remember the, yeah. correctly, that imaginative capacity. Well, yeah, you have to have some kind of imaginative capacity uh, to have supernatural belief and mm-hmm. to be religious, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, when I get into discussions with my atheist friends, mm-hmm. um, one of the points I always try to make is that I don't think atheism is unreasonable. Mm-hmm. I think it's unimaginative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the reasons why it doesn't appeal to me very yeah, much. I mean, I, I think life is lived best with a, a bit more imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I so, so um, yes, there is an imaginative capacity that I think is important for religion. We are imagining that there is this supernatural realm. Yeah. I, I know there are some people that are saying, no, I've touched it. I've felt it. I've had an experience. Yeah. And, okay. But I, I would even say your ability to touch experience, something that you then call supernatural, that's a mental ability. Well, um, you have to be able to even imagine the consciousness of another person. Yes, yes, right. Yeah. And so, right. so that gave us some type of competitive advantage to be able to, to imagine other th- abstract principles and other things like is that well if you start with this ability to imagine what another person must be thinking and therefore from that you can get an idea of how they're likely to behave in the future gotcha i know if fred is ticked off at me better give fred some room because if you know yeah I, I, if i don't he might hit me <laughs> yeah uh, so i can predict behavior by having some idea of what thoughts motives intentions uh someone might have we think uh, you know when we look at our ancestors another thing that probably was was very common in terms of using imagination was hunting yeah. uh, and, and the ability to anthropomorphize the, the prey uh, and try to figure out, okay, the prey is now injured. Uh, it's going to hunt for some place to hide or mm-hmm. something. So we predict behavior based on the feelings, emotions, goals that we think the animals mm-hmm. have. Uh, traditional hunter-gatherers do this all the time yeah. as, they're trying to, as they're hunting. So there's all kinds of reasons to suspect that this sort of imaginative capacity would have had positive advantageous effects yeah um and so our ancestors would have been selected for it uh, but if you keep selecting for it those with greater imaginative capacity are going to start to imagine more mm. uh than just you know what is fred thinking or what is the animal going to do now uh and so that's where you start to have this capacity to envision that the natural world around you uh the sky above you um these place you know these things also have some kind of mentality to yeah. them they yeah. have some kind of intentions to them um and and if i can figure out those intentions i might be able to predict how they're going to behave yeah. and that might have an advantageous effect for me so all of that then becomes part of the mental architecture that allows for supernatural yeah. belief and religion and religious practice and, and all those sorts of things it- and um and maybe this is not you know the main focus of the book but i found it so fascinating when you when you talked about the study of calvinist atheists and mm-hmm. or, or no sorry calvinist atheists that's probably an oxymoron <laughs> dutch the dutch calvinists oh, yeah, and know. dutch atheists I what, what you're about. and how it and how they're i don't know if it's necessarily directly related to imagination but what they believed affected their their brain's response to visual cues yeah yeah well, we're finding out more and more that cultural effects, 
um, and what kind of culture you're raised in. Uh, this isn't a layer that you put on top of your mental functioning and your perceptual functioning and your physiological, yeah, the physiological yeah. you. So yeah. we often think of, okay, there's the biological you and there's the social you or the yeah. cultural you and these are two different layers. But what we're finding out more and more is, no, these things interact yeah. very intimately with each other. And yeah. so, uh, right, if you give some kind of a visual pattern or a visual array uh, to folks from different cultures, the way they allocate attention over that visual array will vary yeah. depending upon their culture. Um, and so that tells you that the very fundamental processes of perception and attention uh, and then the cognition that's built on top of that uh, from the very get-go, yeah. they're being affected by your culture, your beliefs, your customs, all of this stuff that you're raised with yeah. that make you part of a particular group or a particular tribe. Yeah. Uh, and so th- that, that I think what that does is it tells us that other people out there from a different culture, different set of beliefs, different worldviews, they really are looking at the world differently than you are. Exactly. They're, they're seeing the same world, yeah. okay, but they're allocating attention to it differently. The parts of it that are prioritized for them, that are most valuable, most important, are different yes. from yours. And so even though we're seeing the same thing, we're extracting different meaning from it. Yeah. And so for me to try to communicate with you, um, I first – I can't assume that we share – um, certain meanings in common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with the, we're coming at this from the same framework. Yeah. Uh, I better take a step further back and and try to get at, okay, what's your fundamental take on all of this? Yeah. And not make assumptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have a hard time communicating. I think it's another chink in this um, belief or theory, again, a, a more, I would call it more scientific, uh, scientism it, or like this idea that if we could just empirically look at the data objectively, yeah. then, then, then we can solve all the problems. And and if we have any disagreements, it's because you're not looking at the data objectively and I am. And there's a quote in here that I just kind of laughed at uh, where they talked about how worrying the authors summarize the findings in stark terms. It seems possible that religious beliefs may indeed lead to different and sometimes incompatible interpretations of the same incident. This, that this can happen is a well-known empirical fact, but that it can originate in basic automatic visual operations that precede conscious representation is surprising and in some sense worrying. Yeah. <laughs> and it seems to work against the scientific ideal that careful observation is sufficient to reach agreements about basic facts and what we consider reality. I thought that was so great. And then you said, so this was a quote from the study, right. but then you said believers and non-believers see the world differently. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I, I wish more people could hear that. You know, I, I think that's so important again, to try to cultivate a sense of empathy yeah. and that you can't just say, well, the reason that person's acting that way is they're not educated enough or they're not being rational. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, right. Uh, I think one of the things that this shows is that um, we have these different frameworks with which we're approaching the world mm-hmm. um, and we have to be cognizant of that and careful of that. Yeah. And that um, whether you're a believer or not, probably has much less to do with rationality and mm-hmm. rational arguments because you can make all kinds of rational arguments in favor of faith, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's Aquinas was doing all kinds of stuff like yeah. that. And they've yeah, been yeah. doing that for, for centuries. Yeah. I think it's has much more to do with how you experience life. Yeah. Uh, and some people experience life in a way that reinforces or communicates to them that there is this great benevolent love out there. Yeah. Uh, and so they then start to act on that and they then start to interpret 
their experience, their world, yeah. their perceptual scene mm-hmm. from that perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they start to pick out and see things, whereas other people don't. Yeah. Uh, they don't experience the world in that way. You said that what separates a religious person from a skeptic is the relational risk-taking. I love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I have to credit William James. I'm pretty sure it's William James uh, yeah. who he, – he talked about religion very much in those terms mm-hmm. uh, and talking about that, that the reason why he's religious is that he – takes a risk mm-hmm. with this supernatural thing. Yeah. And, and he thinks that others are, are unwilling to do that. Yeah. Uh, and that's what makes them non-religious. Yeah. This is where it gets really interesting. It starts the, the Venn diagram between, you know, your, the world of psychology and my world in pastoral ministry, the way I've understood, you know, in, I'm sure this isn't the deepest explanation of this, but my kind of narrative for what has happened in the church and in Christianity, but specifically in the Catholic church is that we had the enlightenment and this hyper-focus on rationality and we have the Protestant reformation and a lot of people didn't know the faith. Um, there wasn't any codified seminary. So the council of Trent, you know, they create a catechism because up yeah. to that point there was no, like, here's the, here's everything we believe. Um, and so there was a hyper focus. The Counter Reformation really focused on we need to educate yeah. people. We need to get them the intellectual doctrine. But then, as we start approaching the modern age, um, that Counter Reformation assumed that the family life was reinforcing this trust or this relationship with God, yeah. this experiential yeah. relationship, and so you reach a point in America where you're sending your kids to school to be educated, but it's not in the context of the experiential relationship with the supernatural with God. Yeah. Yeah. And so as that experience fades away and we're treating people as purely rational creatures and we're just like, well, we're just teaching them that God exists and here's the four proofs, Yeah, but we're not helping them. How do you, you strip away all any ritual, right? Cause they yeah. come home. There's no ritual in their yeah. life. You strip away the liturgy and, um, from the way the way I'm reading it and my kind of you know crude timeline or narrative is that the purpose of Vatican II was how do we represent the faith to modern man who doesn't have that context mm-hmm. and in a society in a in a post Christian nation well not in Vatican II wasn't about America but uh, in our in a post Christian world in some situations. And what's interesting is for me, the way I was kind of trained and read the documents and what it sounds like Pope Paul the sixth and, um, John the 23rd and JP two mm-hmm. and Benedict and even Francis now are all saying is we need to recover this personal relationship. Yeah. And a lot of Catholics at my parish are like, Oh, that sounds super Protestant. And because there are some Protestants that focus on it exclusively, but, uh, you could also say it in a, in theological terms that, the idea of personal faith has been lost. And when you approach the faith purely intellectually, um, you, you, you lose something. And there's a quote by Benedict the 16th that I talk about a lot because uh, there was a stat by, uh, I think the CARA Institute, C-A-R-A, mm-hmm. I think it's related to Georgetown or I forget where they're from, but they said that mass attendance rises and falls in direct proportion to um the belief in whether or not it's possible to have a personal relationship with God Hmm. and that you can kind of predict mass attendance based on whether or not they believe that that's possible. So the more they believe it's possible, then it goes up. Then the more, which kind of 
makes sense because if we view religion as a relationship, yeah. if you don't think there's any – then you're just – it's just an intellectual pursuit. Why do I need to engage in these rituals? And uh, Benedict had this quote that I've talked about a lot um, where he says – uh, Christianity is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but it's an encounter. Right. Yeah. It's yeah, a relationship yeah. with a person who's living and it changes our whole life. Yeah. And so when I was reading those parts of your book, you know, from the evangelist in me, the part of me that's talking about this stuff from a theological perspective and a faith perspective, I'm like, man, in, even in psychology, there's something you could, we could talk about this relationship. So I just was wondering what you, what you think about that. Um, especially, and it's kind of become the pillar and the theme of a lot of evangelistic efforts is that we need to help people recover an experience of a relationship with God. And when people do, in my experience, when people do uncover that and give themselves completely over that, it changes everything. Suddenly they want to learn everything about yeah, yeah. this God who they love and have so the emotion motivates the intellect. Yeah, 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 yeah. In some ways. Or would you say emotion, would you or would you how do you would you say that their emotion or their that experience or that experiential day-to-day relationship then motivates their i don't know what do you think what are your thoughts well here yeah here i completely off base (laughs) no uh but there i i have some some thoughts about the whole thing yeah um okay first of all um a lot of times when i go and talk and i talk about rituals and that kind of stuff and uh somebody asked me about um you know is it good to have kids involved in, in ritual and and i say yeah absolutely yeah um but i think one of the things you're doing very early on with little kids is you're not necessarily trying to explain all of the nuances and all the rationale behind why you do this particular ritual. Mm-hmm. You're just trying to get them to love the ritual. Yeah. yeah. So, you, so you first appeal emotionally to yeah. them. And, yeah. and once you get them to where they have this emotional connection to the ritual activity, then you can start as they get older and their you know yeah. minds start to become more sophisticated. Yeah. You can start to get into more of the intellectual thing. So, the, the fact that emotion motivates intellect, I agree with that. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, now, there are some things that, that worry me a little bit. Um, and that is when, when you say that religion is relationship, personal mm-hmm. relationship with God, that does sound Protestant to me. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds too much – and it's, and this is not something that I get very excited about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds too much like – Oh, Jesus, <laughs> yeah. Jesus, yeah, yeah, yeah. let's give, give, tell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some people are into that. Yeah, yeah, you know, I've never been into that. Yeah. Um, and so I think the idea, I think you can't have the idea that the relationship with the supernatural, the relationship with God, is the same as or necessarily modeled on human relationships. Mm-hmm. It's a relationship, but it's different. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and. I think that's why um, spontaneity, um, informality, the kinds of things that can work very well in human relationships, mm-hmm. for me, I don't think they work well yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think ritual becomes the mechanism by which this particular kind of relationship is cultivated. Yeah. Um, and so as long as we understand that when we talk about relationship, we're not talking really about the same thing as human relationships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, there's a, there's it's analogous, a, maybe. Well, there is a relationship there. There's a relationship mm-hmm. there in the sense that there are communicative um, events. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're communicating somehow. Yeah. Um, it's a relationship there in that it, it 
transforms. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some kind of growth that comes out of the relationship. And those things are present with human relationships. But the, the mechanism by which we're doing the relating mm-hmm. is not the same. Yeah. Um, well, at least I don't think it's the same. Now, I'm, I'm sure there, you know, there there is an argument on the other side. I mean, there 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 are those who who would argue, no, no, no. You know, I talk to God, mm-hmm. and it's when I talk just you know informally without reciting Hail Marys, just I pour. And okay, that's that's how you do it. Yeah, doesn't work for me. Well, um, I think I and, think and, there's I think there's a synthesis of both of them though. You yeah. Know? Okay. Like um, like a because I think a lot of Catholics before they have an understanding of ritual as relationship to them. It's hollow. It's, it's like a hollow tradition. It's, yeah. It's, it doesn't, yeah. it lacks the supernatural maybe for them because they're like, well, we stand up, we sit down, you know, <laughs> but, but when, but when you're standing up and sitting down and your diligent participation in liturgy or yeah, ritual yeah. becomes a way of communicating yes. with the supernatural and relating to it. Yes. Then it's suddenly infused with all this meaning because now it's, I'm participating in the worship from not just from an intellectual yeah, yeah. perspective, but uh, this relationship. You yeah. Know? Uh, so, so I guess what I would argue is that you, you should not um, disconnect the ritual aspects of it from the relational aspects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and there is, you, you, you should not substitute um, personal, spontaneous, uh, informal prayer yeah. and other sorts of personal, spontaneous, informal things that you do to relate to God. That should, I don't think that should be the primary way. Mm. That's me maybe just talking. Yeah. And it certainly shouldn't substitute for the ritual activity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if somebody says, I oh, I don't, I don't, you know, do ritual stuff. I don't pray the rosary and I don't go to mass, but I, I pray a lot. I talk a lot to God and that's my church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. There's a uh, spectrum. Yeah, right? yeah. And there's, there's the, going in one direction where there's no need for personal faith in God. Yeah. It's just a purely intellectual, right? It's a, pu- a purely intellectual. Like I just believe intellectually that this is something I should do. I don't actually trust that God is a living thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then there's another extreme that's like, well, I don't want any ritual. It's just me and God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I've always found myself in between both where, um, uh, you know, like you said, ritual is a some type of relationship that requires trust requires an experience of it and it re it reinterprets actions that i do right yeah it's different than just a bird doing it i'm doing it and god is a sentient being that i'm somehow communicating with Let let me put it this way i think if you're going to be catholic what distinguishes catholicism from other approaches to religion is that we're going to say you you must be a part of the community ritual activity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you're not really a Catholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? Yeah. Um, and so that element can't be lost. Whereas I think in other traditions, they're probably not going to take that hard of a line yeah, on it. Yeah, true, true. Um, yeah. And, and I tend to agree with that line because I think – I think you have an experience in ritual that is unique. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, and, um, that experience can't be replicated in, in, in any other, especially when it's some kind of community yeah. ritual activity that yeah. we do together. I think that's what specifically makes us Catholic. Yeah. And like you said, there are ways that you, ha- there are different rules for our relationship with the supernatural yes. than there are with our spouse. Right. Yes. But there are some analogies because if you view 
if you view mass or the Eucharist as purely just some type of like superstitious formal action, but you could reinterpret it as, man, this is me. For me, it's my personal relationship with God is in the context of this community. Yes, exactly. And I'm able to come in communion with God. And so that, that I think is like a more balanced approach to the two extremes, you know? Well, again, we're getting back to experience. Yeah. uh, And this is how you experience God. Yes. Yeah. uh, And that experience then has some impact on, on how you're living your life. But, but, to experience God in this way, you must be part mm-hmm. of this ritual activity. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that's an important element. So I had a few questions. I put um, I put up that you were going to be coming over, and I asked people to submit any questions. And I had one that I thought was very interesting about. I think it was about celibacy. Someone said, um, "Not I don't practice it." <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, um, this was Alana Boudreaux said, would you mind asking uh, the professor, the good doctor, if he, what he considers to be the anthropological basis for celibacy, particularly of a priestly class, some type of set apart, maybe like a shaman or something like that. Is there any anthropological basis? I'm not sure. You know, I don't yeah. know if that's the right way to say that. Well, uh, these would have been individuals who would have been uh, totally at service to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and there certainly can be individuals like that. We know that um, you know sexual drive and sexual attraction, these things vary. Yeah. Uh, and there probably have always been individuals who, you know, sex drive and libido were rather minimal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so if they really didn't have this strong urge uh, to get made it up, uh, the community could certainly use them yeah. uh, to help with all kinds of tasks mm-hmm. that the breeders uh, are yeah. engaging in. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that you see in other species. Um, you see in other species the, the phenomena they call uh, you know, helpers in the nest, mm-hmm. uh, which are usually um, older male um, nestlings who can fly away, um, but because they're still small, they're not totally mature yet, uh, they're just not big and strong enough to claim their own territory. Mm-hmm. They hang around in the nest with their parents and with the, their very you know young brothers and sisters, and they help out. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, it, it, if there you know could very easily have been those individuals uh, in a tribe uh, that were unmated, uh, and then they would perform certain functions in the tribe that helped uh, reduce the burden. Yeah. Uh, for other members of the tribe, and that would then, as a total, make the tribe more adaptive, more functional than someone else uh, you know some other tribe over here that didn't have that yeah, class going yeah, on yeah. so uh yeah i mean there there certainly can be some kind of evolutionary history of that sort of thing is there any sense in which a shaman or some type of you know the the wise the old wise kind of archetype in the community is there any set is there any basis for this idea that the more that that person is sacrificing the more the more in touch they are with the supernatural is that something that you see at all uh certainly not among shamans okay um and and so probably um, or like fasting for long periods or like this idea that if we sacrifice more we're somehow in touch with yeah yeah well uh, shamans in a tribe would always have had their ways of 
inducing their altered state of consciousness in which they were then interacting uh, with uh, the spirits and trying to get information from the spirits and trying to bring about healing uh, for their tribe. So uh, abstaining from sexual activity, um, you know, some, uh, you know, fasting practices, uh, self-rejection practices where, you know, they will go out into the cold and, you know, not try to take anything to uh, comfort themselves or keep themselves warm. Uh, But all of those would have been practices to demonstrate to the community uh, that they possessed a certain kind of supernatural ability or supernatural strength mm-hmm. uh, that the rest of the community really didn't have, and therefore that would enhance their status. Yeah. Um, so those practices really weren't in the same kind of – we wouldn't really interpret them the same way as we tend to interpret, say, priestly celibacy mm-hmm. and the sacrifices that they're making. Mm-hmm. Um, but but – you know, they, they, there certainly could be a precedent for that kind of activity, only as we move forward in terms of the evolution of religion, those practices start to get reinterpreted in a different way. Okay. Uh, let me move on to, are there any distinctions between religious observance and superstition was a question she put up. We might have kind of covered that a little bit in, in terms of ritualized behavior, like the spectrum yeah. of – um, ritualized behavior versus I, th- I think it's an interesting question though because religion often gets dismissed as just being oh so much superstition mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I, I guess we have to define what we mean by superstition yeah yeah the, yeah the, the definitions of ritual ritualized behavior superstition all seem extremely important yeah uh, and um, I, I guess I'd have to go back and look up and see if you know there are folks who have thought about that and come up with different definitions I mean we think of superstition as um, simply beliefs practices that don't have any practical value at all that um don't have any evidence you know and no kind of evidence yeah. behind them or yeah, yeah. that sort of thing and i think that's probably the reason why you have this long tradition of rational defenses of, mm-hmm. of faith is mm-hmm. to try to separate it from uh, superstition and, and to try to demonstrate that uh yeah even though there are these beliefs in Non-material things, uh, beliefs that can't be proven in any sort of rigorous scientific way, they are different from what we might simply call superstition where there may not be any evidence at all yeah. that that, that uh, behavior is doing any good. I, when I'm, I'm thinking of superstition and I'm thinking now of baseball players and and the kinds of things that they do, you yeah. know, make sure they wear the same socks and, and all that <laughs> sort of thing. Um, you know, and and there's you know no real any kind of evidence to demonstrate yeah. that wearing the same kind. But other than the psychological, right, yeah. which yeah. is that well, this makes me comfortable, yeah, uh, and because it makes me comfortable, uh, because I think I'm doing the right thing, uh, my performance is better because I'm just more. Well, and it's repetitive every yeah. time I put my socks on, I do this thing. I wonder too if there is some type of like like um, we have these tendencies to try to do these ritualized behaviors. And maybe these are like the evolutionary, uh, I don't know the, the, like the children that never grew up kind of, I don't know if that's the right way to say it. It's like, we tried to do a lot of rituals. Some of the ones that actually worked Mm -hmm. turn into a bigger thing. And then these are kind of like the vestiges of our, um, our natural tendency to try to ritualize stuff. But if it doesn't turn into something, it just turns into like a, a very weird superstitious tapping of. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, and also I think a part of it is um, correlation mm-hmm. uh, and why take a chance if yeah. you don't have to. So if I've always done X and that's always been associated with the appearance of Y, yeah. 
Um, and I like why. Yeah. Um, why take a chance? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. which, which you can argue is very reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know if X is causing Y. Yeah. All I know is the two of them tend to appear together. Yeah. And I have control over X. So as long as, you know, I have some, I'm going to do X because it seems like. You don't want to be you know, the one guy in your family that causes the Saints to lose because yeah. you didn't wear the jersey or you didn't, <laughs> or you shaved, right? Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, so, yeah, I mean, those things. Are, and as long as those things aren't necessarily causing harm mm-hmm. in some way, um, you know, I don't think they're a big deal. Okay. Another question. Alana asked a lot of questions. Uh, the other one was, can you ask his opinion on natural law and where he sees us fitting into the larger religious evolutionary picture? Wow. <laughs> These are some intelligent questions here. Some deep natural law. So we're talking about Thomas Aquinas and his distinctions yeah, between think, natural law and moral I think law. And this, this, all I, 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 um, I get into this a little bit too, when I read people like Jonathan Hyde or, or, or some of these people who talk about morality just being relative and cultural yeah. and we have moral intuitions, but there's this idea that there's some type of law that is common yeah. or should be common objective among all of us. Well, as C.S. Lewis said, you know, if you get on a subway and you sit down and you stand up to go to the bathroom and someone else sits in your seat, you come back and you set you um, appeal to a natural law, <laughs> which is you shouldn't take my seat when I'm up and you assume that the other person knows it without having to ask them like, what's your stance on seats? You know, what's your stance <laughs> on fives on chairs? You know, um, um, well, I tell you what, there certainly are studies that show that there are uh, commonalities in ethical beliefs mm-hmm. uh, across, you know, widely different communities. Um, so, you know, reciprocity is a big one. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, if you do me a favor, I, I should do you a favor. And, and if you do me a good turn and I don't reciprocate, then there's something wrong with me. You know, mm-hmm. that's, you find that as being almost a universal. Yeah. So I, you, you can point to some very fundamental ways in which we interact with each other that are thought of as being right and appropriate that cut across just about all various cultural boundaries. So they're just about universal, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so you might make the argument that's some kind of representation of some natural law of how we should treat each other and interact with each other. Um, well, I think one of the things that happens, though, is that as cultures start to differentiate and they start to have different experiences, they're, you know, working in different ecologies and uh, hunting different animals and, you know, that those very deep fundamental commonalities uh, start to get modified so that they fit with whatever the environmental niche is that a particular group is in. And so then you start to get all of this variation off of these very deep common themes. doesn't mean those common themes aren't there anymore. Uh, and so that may make it look as if there isn't any sort of real deep natural rules by which humans mm-hmm. are operating. But t- typically they're there, but they're just at a very, very deep fundamental level. And, and, and of course, you would have to have it that way because – uh, different human communities are in different ecologies. They're in very different circumstances. And you've got to make sure that whatever you're doing is going to fit with those circumstances. That's mm-hmm. what makes humans so adaptable yeah. uh, is that our, yeah. our ability to do exactly that. And that is vary the way that we look at things and the way that we interact so that it fits adaptively with whatever our circumstances are. Yeah. So it, I don't know if that really answered the question. What was no, that? I think that it was about what, you know, just the nature or natural law. And its relationship to yeah, where do we fit? Is there something about where do we fit in with natural law or something like that? Is yeah, that, like where does he see it fitting into the larger religious and evolutionary picture? Nat- um, natural law. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. well, um, 
I suppose you could make the argument. Because, for instance, Jonathan Haidt sometimes just kind of avoids the question altogether about some type of objective moral law. Yeah, he yeah, just yeah. kind of, well, that's not helpful. Let's just talk about how we all have moral intuitions that are shaped by culture or just natural to us. Yeah. And so where does that fit in to an evolutionary perspective of of religion and humans and you know, are we just evolving? You talked a little bit about religion as relationship or ritual and the, the relationship between that and morality yeah. in the book a little bit. Well, I, I don't think that religion is the origin of morality. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that uh, human interaction yeah. uh, is the origin of morality. Mm-hmm. And that is when humans started to form communities and they had to rely on each other, they had to come up with ways in which they were interacting with each other that they all agreed were right. Yeah. Uh, and so it's right to reciprocate. It's wrong not to reciprocate. Yeah. You know, you don't have to have religion to do yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, but w- what I think starts to happen, though, is that religion starts to take certain elements of what you might think of as our natural morality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it starts to uh, argue that those elements are superior to mm-hmm. other elements. Mm-hmm. So Think about this. Uh, There's a very natural tendency, and you could argue that there's a moral basis for this, and that is there's a very natural tendency to take revenge. Mm -hmm. You know, if I've been injured or members of my family have been injured, you take revenge on those that have injured you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a – that's a, a very common thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you might argue there's a there's a a, a deep universal uh, human instinct uh, sort of for for that kind of behavior, um, and there's there's a morality to it in the sense that I'm protecting mm-hmm. my family, my children uh, when I take revenge because I demonstrate to the rest of my community. Don't mess with my kids. Yeah. So yeah. I'm protecting them yeah. to do that. To not take revenge mm-hmm. is to demonstrate, man, you can mess with that, that group over there. Steal stuff from them. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they won't do anything about it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's going to be bad for my offspring. Yeah. You know, but, but religion starts to come in and starts to say, wait a minute. No. <laughs> Even though you, you want to take revenge, uh, you must find other ways. There yeah. must, you know, our, our justice requires that um, we find other ways of solving these issues. Yeah. Um, not, we just can't all be, you know, going around, what is it, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. <laughs> yeah. and we're all one-eyed and toothless. Yeah. Right? yeah. 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 And that's bad. Yeah. Ultimately, that's bad for our community. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've, I've always argued that no, religion is not the origin of morality. What it is, it's a perfection of morality. Yeah. What we're trying to do is we're trying to take our natural moral tendencies, our natural tendencies to try to define what is right and wrong, and we're trying to perfect them. We're trying to find what's what's the best yeah. of that. Um, and that's the morality that religion tries to uphold, or at least the best of religion. Um, and so that's, I think, where you start to get, you know, Jesus talking about self-sacrifice and, the, the you know, uh, he who puts himself last, you know, shall be first. And, yeah. uh, you know, we're, we're now looking at a perfection of our natural tendencies. What do you think about, you know, now for coming all the way to modern, you know, the modern age, what do you think about in a democratic society that's plural pluralistic and um people are allowed to practice different rituals that they want to practice and then also like is there a need for us as a society to have some type of universal ritual like is it important for us in order to have conversations to not just be rational but also participate with others who are different than me from a different tribe from a different worldview is there some type of 
is there a lack? Do you, do you think that there's a lack of ritual in our democratic society that we've, this experiment of America that we've kind of made? Is there, or did there used to be, um, maybe it was a form of nationalism that was our ritual or is, is there some way that, and when you look at, you know, um, social media and politics and all there's all these factions. Is there some, do you think that there's a lack of that or there's an answer for some type of a universal mm-hmm. above every other small ritual? There's a larger ritual that we can participate in. Yeah. You, you have to have rituals to unite a community. Yeah. Uh, and I think that if you go back into American history, we did have more universalistic, uh, national sorts of rituals. Um, we had Christmas parades, yeah. uh, you know, and we had, um, and a lot of it was from a Judeo Christian tradition yeah, yeah. because that was pretty much the mainstream. Yeah. Um, we have 4th of July ceremonies, mm-hmm. you know, we, you know, we have presidential inaugurations. And so we do have some national sorts of rituals. I would agree with those who argue that they're diminishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the biggest reasons why they're diminishing is because of secularism mm-hmm. and because of diversity. Yeah. And I'm not against diversity, but it simply is the case that yeah. as a, you know, an area, a geographic area becomes more diverse, it does become harder yeah. to find uh, ceremonies, traditions, beliefs, ritualized behaviors, you know, yeah. ritual things that everybody agrees on yeah. and that everybody is equally enthusiastic about. Yeah, I'm trying to think like it's interesting to uh, – an interesting thought experiment to think what is a ritual – like if ritual is a repetitive action that binds us as a community yes. and appeals to some type of abtra- abstract supernatural principle and let's say that that – abstract principle that we're trying to bind around, even though we're all different is democracy in America. I'm trying to think, well, what is a ritual that we do that celebrates democracy? We don't really have, it's not very cool right now to be excited about America. It's, (laughs) it's, it's cooler to say, well, the political system's trash and this, the experiment, you know, and, uh, it, we don't necessarily have a universal, day of celebrating. I mean, we have independence day, right? Well, we don't necessarily, I can think of, yeah, but we don't necessarily, I mean, I'm, I guess maybe it's just me. I'm not intentionally thinking, let's celebrate this idea of America and democracy. It's more just like, let's shoot off fireworks. Right. But it is a, a more ritualized behavior maybe than a ritual, than well, to the extreme of a ritual. Yeah, uh, I, right. Fourth of July, you know, Memorial Day. We've, we've got some out yeah. there. Lincoln yeah, yeah. and Washington's birthday and yeah. those sorts of things. Um uh, yeah, I think what happened, and they are supposed to celebrate certain values yeah. that all of us as Americans should have hold yeah. in common. Freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but th- there is an inherent problem, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is, you mentioned it right there. Yeah. And that is what they're <laughs> celebrating is democracy uh, and freedom. And that means that I don't have to participate in these things if I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of and, baked into the celebration. Right. Yeah. And my definition of freedom may be very different from yours, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that's supposed to be, you know, that's part of the diversity yeah, of America. Yeah, yeah. All of that is is fine. I'm not against it, but it it does necessarily mean that you have far less of a, a national binding. Yeah, yeah. You have now many smaller, fragmented communities mm-hmm. that have their own, you know, micro traditions. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's exactly what's happening right yeah. now that yeah. we see in America. Yeah. Uh, we are becoming much more fragmented. Uh, there, uh, you know, there isn't a whole lot that we, all of us, 
uh, agree on other than we're allowed to disagree with each other, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. ain't really a great basis for, <laughs> yeah. you know, unified action. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it used to be presidential inaugurations mm-hmm. were a national ritual that yeah. we could all, even if we didn't vote for the guy, mm-hmm. we could still say, well, he's the president. Yeah. And, but even that you, you see, you know, yeah. is becoming uh, more fragmented Yeah, uh, where somebody just says, oh, he's not my president. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. And I don't care. You know, they can do that. And uh, yeah. So it, it is a difficult thing it's uh we have been a successful nation because i think in the past we have had a mainstream culture that everybody more or less agreed upon i don't think we have that that much anymore yeah that's going to be a real challenge yeah going moving forward um and you know our our natural as humans our natural tendency is toward tribalism Yeah. yeah and you have to exert effort to get across tribal boundaries. Yeah. Uh, and when that effort becomes more than what people are willing to expend, we retreat into tribalism. Yes, I 100% agree. It, it's something I'm having to be more and more conscious of. Yeah. Like I was talking about before, I think we started about, you know, I was listening to so much Catholic radio and I was realizing that I, I was just taking the tribe the tribe lines. I was just taking the feed me how I'm supposed to feel and think. And and it was not engendering any empathy in me. It was just causing me to view other people as enemies of my tribe. Yeah. As opposed to just having a, a a better understanding of, of where other people are coming from, you know? Um, Well, I think, I think you have to view your tribe as, okay, I, this is my tribe. My tribe nurtures me. My tribe supports me. Uh, I have an emotional connection to my tribe, but that, same thing is happening to that person over there with exactly. his tribe. So exactly. I can empathize with him or her over yeah. there because what their tribe, what my tribe does for me is exactly what her tribe or his tribe does for him. Yeah. So we have that in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't have to hate them. I don't have to agree with them. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I can respect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, that's, I think that's about the best, the way things are moving. I think that's about the best we can ask for mm-hmm. uh, is that we don't necessarily have this pan-American unity like we used to, unless we get attacked. I mean, there's nothing that will... <laughs> More uniting. Right. Than, yeah, yeah. You know, there's nothing that will unite people uh, of a very different uh, stripes uh, as a common enemy. Yeah. You know, yeah. But, but but until that happens, until the Russians actually show up on, you know, the shores of the Atlantic um, or somebody shows up, uh, the, probably the best we can hope for is that we have respectful coexistence amongst all these various tribes. Yeah. I, I'm not... Uh, optimistic about the, even that, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's about the best that we can hope for, and and we'll just have to see how it goes. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm all my batteries and stuff yeah, are running out. On we a, did on a, a negative. Oh note no, like I that. don't. Well, let's let's be let's be positive. Let's let's have right. some prescriptions here. Um, acknowledge, you know, I think people acknowledging and even realizing that they have cultural inherit that they're inheriting a certain culture that they're inheriting the tendency to retreat towards tribalism yeah. instead of understanding. And like you said, you don't, that doesn't mean I think a very good point is that just because you 
exert effort to understand another tribe does not mean that you have to agree yeah. with the other tribe. And we have to rise above the tribalism and still have constructive conversations that involve disagreement and yeah. that involve, uh, you know, what, why do you think this way and where is this coming from? And, and can we both turn back and look at our tribes and say, well, these are the parts that I've inherited and maybe let's analyze this and where is this coming from? And that's why I really appreciated this book and, and looking at from a different perspective how, yeah. where, you know, how can I look at religion from a totally different perspective outside of what i'm you know normally comfortable with you know theology books yeah, you know yeah. so so i think that's that's a very positive thing that people could take away good good uh last question i think this is a quick one but someone asked have you read the book oh man where is it uh it was just a real quick have you read the book please ask me if you've read the religious sense by luigi Gisani. No, I'm not familiar with that one. All right, that's it. <laughs> I don't know what that is either. It sounds like it was written by a fellow Dago, so it must be a good book. All right, it probably is. <laughs> well, thanks so much. We didn't even have a chance to get into uh, the book Mortal Rituals, so maybe uh, sometime we could do a Skype call and just talk about this book. Sure. I or, played rugby in college. Yeah, okay. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, maybe well, we'll – Well, I, I tell you what. Um, I'm – like I said, I usually am in Dallas sometime over the summer to go to a baseball game with my daughter. Okay. So yeah, if I would love to be arranged again. when I'm in Dallas again, uh, this summer or a summer to come, then uh, we'll do that. Awesome. I would love to do this again. Thanks so much for being here. Dr. Matt Rossano, go get his book, supernatural selection, how religion evolved. And the book that we didn't get a chance to talk about mortal rituals with the story of the Andes survivors. Tell us about human evolution. Um, this band of rugby players who crash and survive for how many days is it? Eight? 72 days, 72 days yeah. and, and a, a, 10 weeks. Yeah. So thanks so much, Matt, for being here. Okay. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it.